0: Um, Okay, so Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 18. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will rise from the earth, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it ever. Yes, for forever and ever. So that is Daniel and the next one is Luke chapter 19 verses 11 to 27 and that is found on, I did have it marked and then I mistakenly took it out and that is on page 743. Okay, it's the parable of the ten minas. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come, was going to appear at once. He said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minas. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your minna has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your minna earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your minna. I have kept it and laid it away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you need, what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow his master replied i will judge you by your own words you wicked servant you knew did you that i am a hard man taking out what i did not put in and reaping what i did not sow why then didn't you put my money in a deposit so that i can so that when i come back i could have collected it with interest then he said to those standing by take his minna away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. So they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me.
1: We're going to look at the passage in Luke chapter 19, but before I start, let's pray. Father, unless you come to us by your Spirit, both to quicken my words and to enable our hearts to be receptive, then we will be able to fill out the next 20 or 30 minutes, but it will be a futile exercise. So stir up in us an expectancy, both in speaking and hearing, that we might fasten on to the truth of your word, And in doing so, our lives might be increasingly conformed to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some people really do have quite funny names, I've discovered. For example, there's a lawyer called Oliver Loser, a teacher called Carol Christmas, and she has a sister, Mary Christmas. And there's an assortment of blokes with names like and I wouldn't want any of these, but like Mo Lester, Robin Hood, and Ben Dover. But at one of the churches we served at in Sydney, Karen and I got to know a wonderfully godly chap, and he's got a funny name. His name was someone else. And he was one of that church's most valuable members, in fact. But sadly he died last month at the age of ninety three. And unfortunately, his passing's left a hole in that church that's going to be really hard to fill because someone else did much more than what any regular person did at that church. Most people just expected that someone else to be doing everything. And whenever there was a financial need, who stepped up to the plate? Someone else. Now, someone else is gone. He left a terrific example to follow, however. His legacy is fantastic. But we're wondering now, who's going to follow it? Who is going to do the things that someone else did? Because they certainly can't depend on someone else anymore. But as a Christian, someone else understood his main responsibility to be faithfully serving in God's kingdom while he waited for our Lord Jesus to return. But there are a lot of Christians who are not like him. They seem to recognise that being a follower and disciple of Jesus is a risky business. And so they prefer to keep a low profile while Jesus is away. They tend to take the easy option, which means to sit back and let other people serve or just to make excuses for why they can't possibly serve. And who knows why they do that. Perhaps they're scared of something or perhaps they don't feel qualified enough or they simply just don't trust God enough. Whatever the case Let me give you some bad news first. Jesus is not going to be pleased. So let's quickly move on to the good news. For those who have faithfully and obediently served and worked in God's kingdom before he returns, when he does return, he's going to affirm and commend and he's going to reward them as good and faithful servants. And so this morning we're looking at this parable in Luke chapter 19, the parable of the miners, and it starts at verse 11. And before I get into it, I'll just clear up one small thing. The miners in this story, although I noticed Anna pronounced it differently, um, but the miners in this story are not those pesty brown birds we get in our backyards. They're actually a small unit of currency, and it's worth actually about three months of pay for a common labourer. But I do want to comment on verse 11 before we get on to the story proper because it's important for the context. It says, While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. You see, since chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been on this journey. He's been travelling and making his way purposely to Jerusalem. his final journey to Jerusalem his last journey to Jerusalem and now they're in Jericho they're 25 kilometres away so everyone who's with Jesus at this point in time is getting excited because as soon as he gets into Jerusalem he's going to become king of God's kingdom but unfortunately they hadn't been listening to him while they'd been on this trip with him Because he'd been trying to tell them that in fact he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die not to get on the throne. So Luke's inserted verse 11 here as a kind of editorial comment to correct what really is a wrong understanding about what's happening for Jesus' followers. But yes, the kingdom of God would be coming in all its fullness and all its glory but yet not until Jesus returns. He hasn't gone yet. So anyway, the plot of the story Jesus tells is pretty straightforward. A noble man, a well-to-do man, leaves for a distant country in order to be appointed as king over his own country. And prior to leaving, he gives his servants a small amount of money, the miners, and he tells them to use them profitably while he's gone. And the story also has in it a subplot, and that is the citizens of this country didn't want him to be king. So when the nobleman does come back, and he comes back as king, he judges the obedience of his subjects with the money he gave them and, he, and, and also the preparedness of the citizens to actually accept him as king. So that's the basic story. And the point of this story is actually found in verse 13, and it's this. Jesus gives everyone professing to be a follower of his an equal opportunity to serve. And we ought to be um, including ourselves in that. And the fact that each servant was given the same amount, one minor each, shows that the parable is not referring to different gifts, but to something that all followers have in common, all Followers share in common. Now, while Luke doesn't specify what it is, it's actually most likely referring to the truths in God's word. That's something that every believer has. Our faith something every believer has. And the mission to advance God's kingdom, which every believer is required to do. We should be understanding that serving in the kingdom is both a witness to God's grace and mercy, but it's also a test of faithfulness. And that's what the purpose of this testing is for Jesus, to determine which of his servants are fit for larger and greater tasks when he returns. Now you've probably noticed that there are three groups of people in the kingdom of this story. Each has their own particular relationship with the king and they each have their own consequences of how they treat the king. And it's this, in fact, that makes the story so compelling because we're all in it. In fact, all of humanity is in this story. So it's these three relationships that I want to focus on in this talk. The first one is the relationship where one can be faithful to the king, which results in rewards. Or secondly, the relationship where one can be unfaithful, and that results in rejection from the king. Or thirdly, one can be an enemy of the king and that results in retribution. So to the first one, the rewards for the faithful. So the faithful people are represented in this story by the first and second servants. They are the true servants of Jesus. They accept his rule and they faithfully and gladly do what they're supposed to do. And they're doing this while they're waiting for the king, for Jesus to return. And we're told that King was pleased with them and rewarded them when he returned. So there's a principle that applies to this group. In fact, we'll see there's a principle we can apply to each of the three groups. The principle for this group is that faithfulness in small matters leads to greater responsibility. The reward for faithful service was not rest, as you might expect. It's not time to kick back and say, I'm done. In fact, It's an opportunity for greater service. And there's a couple of things we should notice about these faithful servants. As I've said, firstly, they started off with the same resources. Yet the first servant returned twice as much as the second servant. Now, this kind of invites us to think that quantities are important. In verse 15, it says the king wanted to know what they had gained. However, a better translation of the original language is that the king wanted to know what business they had transacted. In other words, it was important that they tried to do something with what he gave them, rather than not actually what they made, any gains or profits. Now, because one servant was more profitable than the other, I don't think that means there was... Uh, one servant that was more diligent or worked harder than the other. If we look to the parable of the sower, say in Mark chapter 4, it says that a seed sown in good soil, or in a good soil, can produce a crop 30 or 60 or 100 fold times what was sown. And I think that's what's going on here. And secondly, these servants didn't take any credit for what was achieved. In verses 16, 18 and They said it was the miner that gained the profit. All they did was simply fulfil their responsibility to use it. And if the miner is the word of God, then that's what we would expect. It's the word of God that generates the increase. And there's one more thing we could consider or should consider while we're on the subject of the faithful servants. The story is clear that the opposition to the king from his citizens, that no one, really should expect those who are faithful to him. Sorry. We should expect, because there was opposition to the king, that those that are faithful to the king will also face similar sort of opposition. So the reality is that by walking in the way of the Lord, it's not always going to be easy. But the point is that however difficult we might find it to follow Jesus, being obedient and faithful will ultimately prove to be worthwhile, as we've seen. Uh, Turning now to the unfaithful servant. He was rejected for his unfaithfulness. These are the false servants of Jesus. And he calls them, in verse 22, wicked, not to put too fine a point on it. They accept his rule, they accept him as Lord, yet they're unfaithful by not doing what they were supposed to do while they waited for him to return. So what they had when he did return was taken off them and given to someone else. These people are typically full of excuses and attempt to justify their inactivity. So the principle we can apply and understand from this group of people is that you either use it or lose it. Now the third servant earned a reprimand from Jesus, not because there are issues with his personality or his skills, but because he hoarded something that was meant to be shared and used productively. And in light of the command in verse 13 to put this money to work, His action is not simply a matter of carelessness or um, neglect. It was a matter of disobedience. And unlike the first two servants, he didn't act out of faith. Rather, he seems to be looking out for his own interests. And that's what can happen when we try to deal with God on the basis of what we think he is like instead of on the basis of what he reveals about himself in the Bible. And notice in verse 20 that this servant simply brought back what he was originally given. So he didn't steal it and he didn't spend it recklessly, but he didn't invest it either. So I think one of the things we're being warned about in these verses is is about being lazy. You see, all too often people are saved and become Christians And after that, they sort of sit on their salvation, if you like, without giving anything back to the kingdom, sort of selfishly keeping the good news they've got as a great secret. So they're the ones that wrap their Christian life up in a cloth and stash it away like the third servant did. So imagine you've received a large inheritance. Wouldn't it be really foolish to wrap it up in a cloth and stick it under the mattress? So is that how you should treat your spiritual inheritance? Because by putting our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we've received a great inheritance, an inheritance of eternal life. And as disciples of Jesus, we have the good news of the truth of the gospel. We know the kingdom of God is coming and we know that our lives matter And we know the faithful will be rewarded. And for here and now, we know that there are people who have needs. There are people that need love and encouragement and help. And most of all, they need a relationship with Jesus. So knowing all these things, would it be a smart idea or a dumb idea to put your life into a cloth and stuff it under a mattress and then do nothing with it? What are you going to say to Jesus when he returns and asks you to show him what kingdom business you've transacted with your life? And are you prepared for the consequences if you say to him, well, actually I didn't do much, actually I didn't do anything. And something else we're being warned about here is about failing to trust God to be fair and just. Our own insecurity and fears about what God might do if we fail him can paralyze us into doing nothing. But you know what? There's nowhere in this, in this story where any of the servants are reprimanded or criticised for taking a risk or for even failing. So quite clearly adopting the play it safe strategy doesn't seem like a winning strategy as far as Jesus is concerned. And as I've indicated previously, when we get to the third relationship now, the enemies of Jesus are represented in the story by the citizens. They hate him and they reject his rule as their king and it leads to judgment and destruction when he returns. So they're going to receive what they deserved and that's separation from him for all eternity. And so the principle we apply or derive from this group of people is that all opposition to the King of Kings will fail. Now we might be horrified by the conclusion of this story in verse 27, where everybody that hated him was slaughtered. But you know, beneath that grim imagery is the fact that Jesus is returning to this world one day and everyone's going to be tested. And in view of this, Everyone should feel compelled to make a very serious decision for Jesus because it is a matter of heaven or hell. And friends, it pains me to remind you that not everybody's going to heaven. Now, I know there's lots of people who believe everybody will end up in heaven, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Not everybody's sins are forgiven. Not everybody will be excited when Jesus returns. In this story, both at the beginning and end, verses 14 and 27, the book ends of this story, Jesus has enemies who, dare I say to their dying breath, are resistant to his reign. They don't want him to be king. They don't want to do what he says. They are unbelievers. They are people who don't even want to go to heaven. After all, why would someone who hates Jesus on earth want to go to heaven and be ruled by him in heaven? That makes no sense. And I guess you've picked up that a fairly uh, dominant theme in this story is, is the one of judgment. But do you know the difference between judgment of believers and judgment of unbelievers? Well, you know that the judgment of unbelievers, you know that unbelievers will face Jesus. They will face him to account for how they live their lives according to God's laws. And they'll be found guilty of breaking his laws. And they'll be sent to hell for punishment. Christians also will face Jesus to give an account of their life. But their judgment determines the degrees of reward to be received in heaven. You see, as Christians, our salvation was judged at the cross. But our life will be judged at the end. We'll stand before Jesus and the judgment won't be heaven or hell. That was decided at the cross. But rather, our judgment will be rewards. And so one of the beautiful things about this parable is that Jesus himself makes the application. The ones like the first and second servants who obeyed and trusted their master get more, but the one like the third servant who disobeyed and didn't trust, they end up with nothing from him in the end. So I believe the message from Jesus is quite clear. We're not to protect what he gives us, but we're to invest it for his glory. And in so doing, we can expect to face opposition while he's away while Jesus is away so that's going to require us to remain loyal to the gospel but that's something that he's entrusted us to and to act faithfully with and it also challenges us to avoid the temptation to sit on our hands so that no one knows we've even chosen sides It also challenges us us not to become preoccupied with other things because we have this view that Jesus, well, he hasn't come yet. It's been 2,000 years. He's not coming here for ages. So I can get him to do other stuff. They're temptations we ought not to fall, fall into. So until such time as Jesus returns, there's good news actually for all the people in this parable, in this story. And so there's good news for all of us. So if you're presently an unbelieving enemy of Jesus, then the good news is it's not too late to become a Christian. If you're an unfaithful servant, the good news is it's not too late to become a fruit-bearing faithful servant. And if you are a faithful servant, then the good news is you have time to be even more productive and produce more fruit for the kingdom. But keep this in mind. It's only when Jesus returns that he will make his judgments. So until then, don't let things like fear or, take, or taking risks or embarrassment get in the way of faithfully serving him in his kingdom. Don't assume that bloke with a funny name, someone else, will always be around to do what you should be doing. And so on that last day, is Jesus going to give you more because he can see you were faithful with a little? Or will Jesus take away what you have and give it to someone else? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for this opportunity we've had to learn more about you and to start thinking about how to reflect what we've learned in our lives. We pray now, Lord, that you enable us to work with the opportunities in front of us to share the gospel message, to press forward wisely where there might be risks. May we develop a sense of great contentment as we serve in your kingdom, but not a sense of entitlement as all glory is yours. And finally, Father, We ask that you would help us not to be anxious or fearful about letting you down. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.